Well, I pray you've had a great week. Last week we talked a little bit about how Jesus modeled discipleship for us. We looked at the temptations that he faced in the desert and how he rose above those temptations and how he laid his himself down and took the journey to the cross on our behalf. And that style of discipleship is the very thing he's asking of you and me as well. Well, today we want to take a look at the calling of the very first disciples. We want to take a look at what did Jesus ask of them. And then we want to also take a look at how he gathered his disciples into community. Because I believe with all my heart that if we are living lives apart from a biblical community, apart from other believers that our discipleship potential is minimized. That we have the most change in our lives when we're around other people filled with the Spirit of God and who are seeking Him and we're laying it down together to ask God what He has for us. That's the purpose of church. That's the purpose of small groups and discipleship. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to bounce right into Matthew 4. We're going to start in verse 18. We're going to see the calling of the first two of the what I call the big four disciples for the morning. And verse 18 starts and says this. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water. And this is not talking about your children's pastor. Throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Verse 19, Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. In verse 20, says, And they left their nets at once and followed him. So when Jesus called the first disciples, Peter and Andrew, the first thing he told them is to come Follow me. And that's a key point in discipleship. Discipleship is not about me following you because you are a leader. Discipleship is about me following Jesus. He invites me. He invites Andrew. He invites Peter to come follow me. And then we see this big shift in their career. They were fishermen. They knew nets very well. They would throw these nets in the water, gather fish, and then they would make a living. Uh, I've seen I've seen fishermen do this uh, in the Mekong River, where they're in these boats, and what an what an art to take these fishing nets and just to throw them into this fast moving water, and try to catch the fish. It was it's something to behold, and and I'm sure that Peter and Andrew were skilled fishermen. I'm sure as they were making a living, they were they were good at it. Now, I don't know if you've hung around a fishing community, but they can be a rough crowd. I've worked with a man who was dying of cancer, and he used to work in a shipyard, and he had some stories. He had a rough background, but when he encountered Jesus, he became very tender because he realized that he was in the presence of the Almighty. And he actually, a couple months before he died of cancer, he came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. But he was, he was a guy that hung around a lot of boats and fishermen. And these fishermen at once left their nets to do what? To follow Jesus. I found in discipleship, there's always a leaving of something in order to follow Jesus. 
God usually asks us, what distractions are keeping us from focusing completely on his son? And those distractions are things he asks us to lay down. Those are the nets in our life. They tie us up. They keep us from following Jesus. And he asked you and me, will you lay down your nets and come follow me on a daily basis? What's hindering us from being with Jesus clearly and following him? Let's look at verse 21. We see the next two of the big four. Verse 21, a little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers. I get this feeling like Jesus is walking along. He's listening to the Spirit as his father's directing him. And he says, there's a disciple, call him. There's a disciple, call him. There's number three. And there's number four. And Jesus is just going along his life. And the Holy Spirit is telling him, there they are. He saw these two other brothers, James and John. You guys are familiar with them. Uh, they were sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee. One of the best words of the uh, names in the Bible right there, Zebedee. Uh, I wish I had a cool name like Zebedee. I, if I was Zebedee, I'd have you call me Z. Is, is that cool or what? Hey, Z. Yeah, what's up? You know, but God gave me a name like Mark. It's just not as exciting. But here they're with their father. They're in a boat with Zebedee. In fact, they're known in the scriptures as James and John, the sons of... Yeah, that too. But they were known first as the sons of Zebedee. But you know who named them the sons of thunder? Jesus. Jesus, he created a nickname for these guys. They were the ones that wanted to call down thunder from heaven, lightning from heaven to destroy people. And so I think it was tongue-in-cheek. I, I, you know, it's you remember the story of Elijah. But I think it was just kind of... Fun. Jesus was having fun and he renamed them. They were known as the sons of Zebedee with a dad with a cool name like that. You can see why. And they were repairing their nets and he called to them and he said this. Verse 22, it says they immediately followed him and they left their boat and their father behind. Different than the nets. Remember James? Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Peter and Andrew. They left their nets. But these guys leave their boat and their father. Sorry, dads. You know, there is a part of following Jesus when sometimes we do have to leave our families. I know this sounds cruel. In Utah, we have a family of churches, and a lot of times when people turn to Jesus in that community, they will actually lose their families. They will lose their jobs at times because they've become Christians and they get ostracized. In fact, we have a, a, a church planter there named Paul Roby. Paul says his belief was we needed a big, strong church in Salt Lake City area because when people would leave the predominant faith in the area, it would cost them something. Sometimes their livelihood, sometimes it it definitely cost them their social structures, and it was a hard place for them to survive. So he wanted to ask God if he could create this church where it could be a family to people. So if they're leaving something that they enter a community where they find life and safety and vitality. And that was very true. And it's happening even in the United States in a place like Utah right now. How many in the room are the first believer in your, in your families? Can I see your hands? First believer in your family. You think. There's one there. I, I was the first believer in my family. And I remember when I was getting baptized, I invited my parents to come. What do you think their response was? No. 
They weren't very excited. I am Mark, son of John, but my, uh, my father said, no thanks. They weren't real happy that I was becoming a follower of Jesus. And I had to make a choice. Do I please my parents? Or do I do this thing that's coming in my heart that God is calling me to be obedient to His Son? I, and I had a choice to make. It wasn't a radical choice. It wasn't life or death. It wasn't, I wasn't losing my family. Although I went through about what I call the seven year dark time where my mother was very angry at me. And every time we'd get together, there was this hint of, of anger. She got even more angry when my siblings started to turn to Jesus too. But about year seven, something happened. There was a grace that came over her and she actually started to encourage me to talk to my nephews and nieces about Jesus because they needed him. And something shifted and it was as clear as day. I think it's because I married up and I had a great wife. Uh, kids were starting to be born, but my mom all of a sudden turned and I, and I can't explain it, but boy, am I glad that in the time I had to make a decision between honoring my family or honoring my God, I tried to do both, but I knew that I had to be obedient to God first and hopefully my family would come along with that. And they did. And to this day, they've been very supportive of the career that God has put me down. Something we don't hear when we come to Christ, if a lot of us, not many first generation Christians in our families here, there's only a handful. But sometimes when we come to faith in Christ, we don't, we don't quote this verse from Matthew 16 to people. Verse 24, Jesus said this to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. Because if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. We don't really say that to the six-year-olds very well, do we? Like when you came to Christ and you said yes to Jesus, what did you sign up for? I signed up for eternal life. I wanted to know that my sins, which were many, were forgiven. Because when I thought of God as a, as a college freshman at Fresno State, when I thought of seeing God face to face, I thought, He's certainly going to send me to hell. I've done too many evil things. I have too many evil things in my heart. I cannot stand before a holy God because He's going to judge me. And so I was looking for instant relief. Could you save me from this horrible life? And Jesus said, yes. I'm glad to save you. I'm the only one who can. And so I was saved unto Jesus. But then you start to discover more passages like this. If you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. We get that because that's that's this whole idea of repentance. I'm doing my own thing. Jesus intersects my life and all of a sudden I turn back from my sin and I turn back to God and I start walking back into his presence, embracing what he has for us. That's the image that we have of repentance. That's turning from our selfish ways. And I don't know how you feel, but I have been really going through a lot of discipleship where I've been asked to die to things lately. There's desires in my heart that aren't measuring up to what God wants, and He asks, will you please lay that down for me? Are you willing to submit everything about you to me? Will you take up your cross, which means you are actually a dead man who's walking, and you're only alive in my spirit, but the old self, the fleshly guy, is is on, on a pathway of dying, and 
And sometimes the old man doesn't like to die. I have desires and drives that demand attention. I want to be recognized. I want to feel I'm important. I, I got things to say. I got places to be. I, and God says, are you willing to lay all that down for me? You know, when he called us to be disciples, he said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Are you still willing to follow me? Do the entry level thing that I called you in the first place. The more we try to hang on to this life that we define for ourselves, the less the life of Jesus can live in us. And here's what I notice that happens when I die to the things that aren't of God and I and I consistently take those to him and I put them back on the cross where they belong. The person who remains is a lot more like Jesus. My sins and the fleshly things are suppressed. And that's an intentional thing he asks us to do. He asks you and me to say, take the things of the flesh and crucify them. So that Jesus can reel and reign in our lives. It's a wonderful trade-off, by the way. Take my sins and the things of the flesh. Allow your spirit to rule and reign within me. It's just a great exchange, but to say it's easy is a lie. It's sometimes some of the most difficult parts of discipleship that we have. See, Jesus quoted this verse. He knew his disciples were going to face some tough things. Ten of them would die as martyrs. Ten of the first twelve, the apostles, would die as martyrs. One would kill himself in suicide. And only John survived. But you know that he was boiled in a a big pot of hot oil. They boiled him. I wonder what his skin looked like after that. He survived. They couldn't kill John. So what they did is they sentenced him to an island in Patmos. You know what happened in Patmos? He gets a vision from God and he writes the book of Revelation. But he, Jesus knew that his disciples were going to be facing hardship after hardship. So he prepared them. If you're going to follow me, you better be willing to take up your cross. You better be willing to die. And he says in another passage, daily and follow me. I think the challenge is the same for you and me. We may not be living in a context where we're facing physical death all the time. But let me tell you, I just met with some people who do. A week and a half ago, I was in Southeast Asia, and we had the opportunity to meet with a bunch of pastors and leaders, uh, some women's ministry, some young adults that, that, that were present at a training time. There's 75 to 80 of them. Some of them have been in prison. Some have been uh, physically beaten. Uh, they've, seen, they've seen people for their faith killed. These people have seen so much. Um, Many of them have lost their jobs. They can't get employment because they find out they're Christians and they just they just throw them aside. And here they are gathered. And we have a team coming from North America, a vision team with pastors and business people. And we land in their presence and we were absolutely blown away. The cost to their Christianity is so high. I mean, they have such a high calling. And the risk is so high. That they never know if they're going to come back alive after they go out on a missionary journey. They send out evangelists on motorcycles that will go from village to village to village sharing Jesus. Sometimes the villages receive them well, sometimes they don't. They're not sure what's going to happen when they go out sharing the good news of Jesus. High-risk Christianity. So when you're around people that are in high-risk Christianity like that, in a high cost, there's something about their faith that's very special. 
They asked us to pray for them. We did. But when they prayed for us, something happened. We faced a power that isn't present in a lot of our prayer services. Because when they counted the cost to follow Jesus, they were all in, including the possibility of physical death on a daily basis. Right before one of our meals, one of the leaders who spoke real good English stood up and he, he challenged the whole group. He stands in front of them. You can imagine if, you, if you're the 75 people being trained. And he says this, are you ready to eat? And they all shout, yes. He says, are you ready to serve? They all shout, yes. He says, are you ready to die? They all shout, yes, maybe even a little bit louder. And we looked at each other and we said, okay, we are now seeing disciples who have counted the cost completely about following Jesus. What did you sign up for when you said yes to Christ? Did you say, anything you want, Lord, I'm in? If you didn't, I'm giving you a chance to reconsider the words of Jesus we've heard today because he wants us all in. Life, death, crucifying the flesh, laying it down so that this, that Jesus can rule and reign within us. And that's a process. Uh, our discipleship doesn't happen overnight. Americans want a quick fix. I asked you to be my Lord and Savior, Jesus. How come I'm not just like you now? You know, because he wants you to walk with him. When we walk by faith and not by sight, we, we Americans want to see where we're going, but Jesus said, nope, walk by faith and not by sight. You're going to have to trust me on a moment by moment, second by second uh, steps in your life if you really want to grow in me. Because if you want to save your life and keep it, you're going to lose it. But if you want me, you're going to have to trust me. And he wants us to walk with him. In the scriptures, we, we also see a pattern that uh, Henry Nowen wrote an article when I was uh, actually a, a youth pastor that I read that I've, I've kept with me. He wrote an article on Luke 6, and it's actually become what we believe is a pattern that, that uh, Jesus promoted and Jesus practiced in discipleship of community that we actually do in all of our mission trips. And if you look at Luke 6.12... It says, as it begins and it says this, one day soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray and he prayed to God all night. The Jewish day began in the evening. So if you're, you're to practice Sabbath in the Jewish community, Friday sundown, their day begins. Friday, uh, Saturday sundown, uh, you, you end the Sabbath day because their day begins actually in the evening. So Jesus is practicing this and he's by himself i should say he's alone but he's also with the father and the spirit he's praying we call this solitude if you read in the scriptures jesus often snuck away to pray he was alone with whom his father he was alone communicating with the spirit if you remember last week jesus is part of the godhead he's existed forever in community with the father and the spirit he's communing with the father and the spirit when he's alone praying all night to god and we practice this for the first 30 minutes of every day on a mission trip with Multiply. We, we say you're going to gather as a team, but the first 30 minutes are for you to read your Bible and to journal and pray. So you're going to be in your, a sort of solitude, seeking God first, you and Jesus. And I say in a selfish way, don't worry about the rest of the world right now. Worry about you and Jesus. Concentrate on your relationship with him. 
And we do that in the first 30 minutes of every mission trip uh, of, of the day as we can. And then verse 13, it says this, at daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and he chose 12 of them to be the apostles. We call the next step that of community. That Jesus takes us out of a solitude time and he calls his group into community. And in this, his community right now, it's bigger than the 12. It may have been the 70. We don't know the exact numbers at this time. But Jesus begins to thin the herd of disciple making. He makes 12 his primary focus. Because leading even 70 would be very difficult. He had no trouble appointing these leaders and he gave them so much time. One author said he gives he gave about 80% of the next two years of his available time toward the disciples, the 12. Amazing, if you think about that. Um, and going on a little bit further here, it's uh, Jesus was basically creating space in his inner circle and in his life for these 12 apostles to learn, to grow, to make mistakes, to question to be transformed. We read in the scriptures all the time how they made all kinds of fumbling mistakes. And you say, how could they do that? You know, Jesus knew another thing. That his three years of discipleship on earth in a physical body wasn't the end game. The time was coming on Pentecost when he was going to send forth the Holy Spirit. And if you read about Peter before the Holy Spirit, before Pentecost, and then you read in the book of Acts and you see Peter post-Pentecost, he's not the same person. He's not the one that's sitting around a fire afraid that a girl has exposed him for being one of Jesus' followers. If you read in the book of Acts, you see him boldly proclaiming Jesus. And you ask, why? The game changer is the Holy Spirit. God comes inside of people when they believe in Him. And He gives us the power and the ability and the understanding. He continues to disciple us. It didn't end three years in the physical body because Jesus says, it's better if I go away. It's better if I go away because I will send the Spirit to you. He says this time and time again in the Scripture. And we're living in the era of the Holy Spirit. We have the power of Jesus alive in us on a daily basis if we reach out to Him and we allow Him to rule and reign in our lives. Jesus was creating space in the center for 12. He knew one of them was going to betray Him, but He still created space for them to grow. And this is discipleship. Last year, we took our interns, we took a trip to Winnipeg, Canada. Very cold place. While we were in Winnipeg, we visited a church downtown. Uh, amazing. They had this, this cool facility. We look out the window, and right outside of the window, you can see drug deals going on. You can see prostitutes walking around. So you get the environment picture. And they were teaching us about how they do leadership. And they said God gave them a vision. There are many First Nations people uh, that live right there in uh, in Winnipeg and they attend their church. We, we call them Native Americans in the U.S. They call them First Nations in Canada. And uh, many people there. So that, that God gave them a vision for leadership that's very unique. And they shared the story. I don't have time to tell you. But the story is that God gave them the illustration of a musk ox as one of their leadership uh, training principles. And uh, the musk ox, if, if you've ever seen them, they're, they're big creatures with horns. They... Uh, they're, they're using pretty long fur. They're in the cold climates. 
But uh, they said, here's what God gave us, this picture. That when a musk ox matures, it gets horns. And when it gets horns, the musk ox doesn't serve in a selfish way in the herd. In fact, what happens is when danger comes, all the mature musk ox, is it musk, musk oxen? I don't know how you say that. They form a circle with their horns out. You get the picture? In fact, you can look on YouTube. It's pretty cool. I've looked up some musk ox things on YouTube. But they form a circle and their horns are out. And so if a wolf or of a pack of dogs or something comes, they're on attack. Because you know what's in the center of the herd? The immature, the newborns, the sick and the old. So the mature oxen, the musk ox, are protecting by forming this powerful circle. Horns out, telling their enemies, don't mess with our family. And they'll defend sometimes to the death. And they say, here's the leadership principles that we learned from the musk ox. One, you don't have to be strong to be loved. One of my favorite things about uh, our church in Salt Lake City area is this. They have a saying that you can believe before you belong. I'm sorry, you can belong before you believe. It doesn't make sense going the other way. You can belong to us before you believe. You're coming out of a context where you've been hurt, you've been lied to, you've been harmed, your family has kicked you to the curb, your your religion has bankrupted you, you're empty. You can come and belong in this worship community and we're going to love you. You can come to the center because we have mature people on the wings that are going to protect you. The second principle in this church is for you to gain power, no one else has to lose it. In other words, there's room for more mature people as long as your horns are are going outwards and as long as you're in the circle. You see, when we use our privilege and our power and our authority for self-service, it damages the church. Leaders are called to create space for lost people to find Jesus, for weak people to grow in Him. We have to create a center where it's okay to explore for teenagers to be able to say, right, Janice? I'm just trying to figure this Jesus thing out. Will you be patient with me? And if you have horns, can you help me? The third principle they have is this. When you are mature or have horns, don't use it for your own status and privilege, but for the community and compassion. Is that a beautiful picture or what? Creating space in the center. The disciples were first called to be with Jesus. And we see in this passage in Luke 6, 17, that as they enter into the avenue of service, that they're standing with him. Look at this in verse 17. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area surrounded by many of his followers. A beautiful picture that Jesus goes into solitude. He comes out of solitude after meeting with the Spirit and the Father. He comes out. He gathers the community. He appoints 12 that are going to be with him. And now they're standing with him. They're observing him do healings. Read further on in that passage. He's healing. He's casting out demons. And all these these 12 apostles are just watching a miracle happen on earth. He's demonstrating what life in the kingdom's about. 
Because pretty soon he was going to assign them to do the same thing. And by the way, you have the same assignment. Your assignment is not lesser. You'll never be an apostle, capital A apostle. You're not an eyewitness of Jesus. You weren't alive during his baptism to his resurrection. But he is going to call you to ministry in the kingdom that this world desperately needs. Jesus doesn't call us just to do things for him. Wouldn't that be cruel to have a savior who says, I've saved you now, go do all these things for me. He says, no, I want you to do things with me. I want to be with you. The Holy Spirit was promised. I will never leave you nor. So the Holy Spirit is never going to leave leave us. The presence of Jesus will always be with us. And it's our choice. Do I want to do things for him as I'm teaching Sunday school? I'm just doing this because I have to. Nobody else is rising up. Or do I want to say, wait, Jesus, if you're calling me to this, you want to be involved. Teach me how to do this with you. You tell me what to do. Let's interact. He, he, he doesn't only want, by the way, he doesn't only want to tell us everything to do. He says, I gave you a brain and a personality and spiritual gifts. I want you to interact with me. I care about what you think. What do you think? I want to do things with you, son, daughter. I can do things. I'm pretty capable as God, he would say. But I've chosen you. That you can be with me. So this week, I got a question for you. What is Jesus asking you to leave behind? Is it a net? Is it a boat? Is it a relationship? But what do you need to leave behind so that your focus can be on Jesus? You can be with him, present, concentrated, and fully with him. So what is he asking you perhaps to leave behind this week? Take that to the Lord and ask him. And then the second question has, happens to do with community. Where is Jesus asking you to join him in community? Where is he asking you to join him? If you've been alone, that's not healthy. Is there a group? Is there a ministry team? Does your own family... Are they longing to be together? Can you gather them in community to say, hey, let's seek Jesus together? Maybe it's in your neighborhood or maybe you're a school teacher and at your school you can gather. Where is Jesus asking you to join in community? What I love about Israel is when Jesus, when God was leading them, it says he led a cloud by day and a fire by night. And when the cloud would move, the whole tribe would take off. Can you imagine with over a million people how long it took to move? <laughs> they moved slowly. And they never left behind their old, the sick, the young. They waited for the whole community to move. And I believe that's what God wants for Bethany Church. He wants no one left behind. He wants everybody pursuing Jesus and following him, hearing his voice and being disciples. So I'm going to invite the worship team up and I'm going to close you with the same three questions that were asked of the Southeast Asian leaders. Are you ready to eat chili? I asked I asked this leader, I said, why do you say that? He says, well, our Southeast Asian people, we love food so much. And he had a bigger gut than me. He said, we love food. And he said, we want to make sure that we love to serve and we're willing to die as much as we love to eat. So we say this all the time. 
So I come back to you. Are you ready to eat chili? Yes. Are you ready to serve? Yes. Are you ready to die? Yes. Let's, let's worship God.